Thanks, guys. Uh, super fun to be with you, fun to actually see you. I very seldom see you, though you see me all the time. I've been told I look much better not in person. <clears throat> so I already know that, so we're okay. Uh, here's what we're going to be doing today. We are going to be having a dialogue on the devil, demons, and spiritual warfare. Okay, A dialogue on the devil, demons, and spiritual warfare. Uh, a couple of prefatory comments. First of all, it's probably not wise to have young kids in here. Um, like if they're under the age of junior high, but they could still understand stuff. It just might not be appropriate for them. Um, the thing about demons is they're very seldom appropriate. So, you know, we could get into some areas of inappropriateness. So if you've got a kid that age, now's a good time to take them out. And we're happy to support you in doing that. As I said, this is going to be a dialogue as opposed to a sermon. So I haven't prepared a sermon. I'm not preaching. I'm going to try to get some conversation going here. So I'll try to say just enough at the front end uh, to get you thinking to the point where you're ready to ask questions, okay? Because we're going to have a Q&A, and that's going to be fun. There's two ways that we're going to be taking your questions, both live in the audience. You'll raise your hands, and Pastor Billy will come around with a mic, and you'll be able to ask your question, or you can text your questions. Okay, so this is the only time you ever get to have your phone out during service, and um, we'll be getting them real time, and then Pastor Al will come up with an iPad and be taking the questions real time, and we'll go back and forth, live question, text. Uh, we're doing text because some of you would just never raise your hand, and it's scary to do it in a big room. We understand that. So you've got opportunities both ways. You can start sending questions right now. It's live. Al will start getting them. So anytime a question pops into your mind, go ahead and send it via text, or wait until I, I give you the cue to raise your hand. Now... If we're going to have a fruitful and fun and friendly Q&A, we need to lay some ground rules for that, okay? So first of all, um, whatever your question is, you, you need to be able to ask it succinctly, okay? Uh, because we, we just don't have a lot of time, and so there can't be like this big background story and this build-up and all, all these things. It just doesn't work in this sort of setting. So whatever your question is, you have to be able to boil it down to a sentence or two and say, I want to know this, and then be able to say it succinctly. Um, if you've got bigger questions that require background story, we're happy to hear those and respond to those and help you with those. We could do that during the week. You could schedule an appointment, drop by the church, any campus, anytime, and we're happy to do that. But if it's going to work today, you've got to be able to state a succinct question. Um, the other thing is uh, that we can't turn this into a counseling session. Listen, counseling is something that we do, we're passionate about, we care about, we do it for free as a church, we do, we do it all week long, we have lots of people that do that, um, and you can set up an appointment, again, drop by the church and we'll get you going on that right away, but we can't turn this into one, it, it would just get a little bit awkward and there's not enough time, so there can't be this back and forth, and then I felt this way, and then that happened, and then, and me responding, that's, that's not going to work, so we can't turn it into a counseling session but we would love to counsel you at any time. Call the church, and uh, we'll get that happening. And, and then finally, uh, this isn't going to be a debate, okay? I know some of you have just been waiting to debate me on a number of issues, uh, but this is not your moment. Um, I actually enjoy debating. I, I love it. would love to argue with you for the glory of God and the kindness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we can set up an appointment. You can email me, Britt at realitycarp.com, realityventura, that'll work too, realitysb, either one of them, Britt at realityventura.com. You could email me and we will set up a time to debate and it'll be awesome. I would love to do that to you. Um, <laughs> and then the questions should just come from a genuine place of need. The, the pastoral heart behind the elders of the church here is to truly help you guys and to help us together uh, get through a season of intense spiritual warfare. So the questions shouldn't be stump the pastor time or, or what's the most difficult Bible question about demons. That's not, that's not why we're here, okay? There's, there's books that you can read. We're, we're here to really help each other as a community get through times of spiritual warfare. Um, if a question comes up and I don't know the answer, I'll just tell you that I don't know the answer to it, okay? I, I will not make up an answer. I've got no ego in this. I've got no pride in this. I, I don't need to know all the answers. Uh, I don't know all the answers, and I'm happy to just say, gosh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. I can maybe refer you to a couple resources. I most likely can that would be helpful to you. I also want to say this. You know, I'm, th there's a fair chance that I may give some wrong answers, 
I don't by any means believe that I'm right about everything. I, I hope that doesn't make you comfortable. I hope you don't think that uh, the pastor for preaching at this church thinks he's right about everything. I know I must be wrong about something. I don't know what it is or I change my mind about it. But I'm sure that I'm wrong about something and probably in the area of spiritual warfare. So if I don't know the answer, I'll just tell you and uh, I may say some things that are incorrect and hopefully God will have grace with all of us and, and teach us as time goes on. We're trying to learn these things together as a community. Also, if, if I have scriptural backing for something that I say, I will tell you. I will say it's found in this chapter, in this verse. Uh, here's a passage or here's that theological concept and here's why I believe that. If I don't have scriptural backing for something, if, if I have an opinion or an observation or a logical deduction from scripture, then I'll say that. I'll say, I don't have chapter and verse for this, but I think this and here's why. And the reason that we have to do that sometimes with spiritual warfare is because of this. Uh, the Bible, thankfully, is not a book about the devil. It's a book about God. It's, it's, not, about the, it's not a book about the devil. So, so inevitably and somewhat frustratingly then, there's a lot of, uh, of holes. There's a lot of stuff that, that we just don't get, we, that we want to know more about uh, the devil and demons and spiritual warfare and Scripture just doesn't seem to tell us all that we would necessarily like to know. So sometimes we've got to say, well... Here's what I think according to these things. And I'll make it very clear when I'm doing that. We also can't cover everything in this time. So if you go to our website, if you go to the um, sermon archives page, you, it's searchable by topic, search demons. And about six or seven of my messages on demons from the past will come up. We also have two that I selected for you guys this week available at the DVD CD table. And they will be spotlighted at realityventura.com this coming week, and they'll give you a broader picture of what Scripture has to say, what culture thinks, and what the church has historically thought about demons, and perhaps some more nitty-gritty dealing with them hardcore. So there's some other resources. And then next week, we'll also have some books at the book table that I recommend on the subject as you guys are ruminating on it. This week, you can come and get a book. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we talking about this at this time? Well, two reasons. One is we are a church on mission. And one of the things we know about mission is that mission always draws opposition. John wrote in 1 John that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And part of the mission of Christ going forth in the world is confronting and destroying what the enemy is trying to do in the world. And we're called to live life on mission with Jesus. And so to the degree that you are on mission is the degree to which you are going to encounter some opposition. So as a church on mission, we're encountering some opposition right now from the enemy. And as individuals on mission, many of us are encountering opposition. So we want to talk about it in light of the fact that we're on mission and that brings opposition. Um, but perhaps more importantly for right now in the life of our church is this. We have been learning about the gospel lately. This wonderful truth that we are more wicked than we could ever possibly conceive of, but more loved than we ever dared imagine. And in his love, God gave his son to die in our place on the cross. And even though we have performed poorly, Christ performed perfectly on our behalf as our representative. So that our relationship, when we put our faith in Christ, our relationship to God is no longer dependent upon our performance or our ability to keep the rules. We are accepted, loved, adored, and blessed because of who Jesus is and not who we are. And that is awesome and wonderful. And so with that, you know, we, we've been talking about the implications of the gospel and how that affects our thought processes and our relationships and how that affects our obedience. So we, we obey now from a different place. We don't obey because we have to to earn the favor of God. We obey because Christ has brought us the favor of God. Right, so we obey from a different place. We also obey because we've legitimately, truly been transformed by the Holy Spirit, right? By the truth of the gospel and the Spirit in us. Whereas we were previously ruled by the flesh and sin, we now have this new nature that is ruled by God and is inclined to obeying God. So we genuinely want to obey God now. We want to do it because we already have favor with God because of what Christ has done and his tremendous love. So we've got this new powerful impetus to obey now that we're free from having to obey. But if you're anything like me, you still find yourself sinning a lot more than you want to. Anybody relate to that or is it just me? Okay, mostly me. I, I, I sin a, a, a lot more than I want to. And here's what Scripture tells us. Even though my sin 
and even, we'll really put it, we'll couch it in these terms for today, persistent, unrepentant sin, okay? Even though my persistent and unrepentant sin does not endanger my standing with God, it does put me in danger of the devil. That's the primary truth that I want to try to tease out through our dialogue today. Even though my sin and even my persistent unrepentance sin does not endanger my standing with God because it's all dependent on Christ and his work on my behalf, it does put me in danger of the devil and open me up to varying degrees of his influence in my life. So let, let me try to tell you a story of how some spiritual warfare has worked in my life recently. And you could decide whether it's from being on mission or persistent unrepentant sin in my life. I'll let, I'll let you decide. But as you guys know, I recently took a sabbatical, went on vacation, went uh, uh, with my family to Hawaii for a month, and I'm very thankful that you guys let me do that, that you guys stay on mission, and uh, that we're all cool about that. So went and did that. And I, I had been very forthright with you all that before I went, I was um, tired and deeply tired. Two years of cancer kicked our butt. Uh, two years of, of constant involved ministry during cancer and lots of expanding mission. Together with that was, quite frankly, just more than we could handle as a family. And we were really, really deeply tired. And I was feeling um, nearly burnt out and uninspired in ministry. So desperately needing a break for our ministerial lives and our personal lives. So a month in Hawaii should have been more of an, than enough time, honestly. Should have been more than enough time. And though I came home with a tremendous tan... And uh, <clears throat> surfing better than I've surfed in years, I didn't come home with renewed vigor for ministry or fresh missional zeal. Quite honestly, I came home feeling apathetic. I wasn't excited about ministry. I wasn't excited about mission. Uh, one of the greatest joys of my life has always been studying the Bible and preaching. I wasn't excited to do that. I wasn't fueling my fire. I, I didn't want to do it. I, I felt trapped by being a pastor and a pastor of a large and growing church um, because I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And so that was creating tre- a tremendous sense of fear because now I'm trapped in something that I all of a sudden don't want to do. It was bringing a lot of anxiety because I, I don't feel like I have the vision or the strength or the wherewithal to do this. This is overwhelming me. And, and that, that apathy which yielded fear and anxiety, was then beginning to work depression in my life. And that was scary. That, 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 that was a scary place to be in. Knowing that I, I went on that trip with my family needing to come back refreshed for the mission of Christ that we're involved in. It was really scary. And it, it, it even got more scary when a couple of people who were close to me in the church said, you know what, Brett, what's going on with you, man? It doesn't seem like your heart is in it. So I, w- I was struggling with that. And then I started having some just catch-up conversations with, with other leaders in our church, right? Men and women on mission with us together. Just catch-up conversations. Yeah, here's what's going on in my life. What's going on in your life? And as we began to talk, I realized that they too were feeling that way. That there was also feelings of, of apathy and despondency that was creating fear and anxiety and depression. That yeah, I know I'm supposed to be on mission. I know what God has called me to do. And I'm doing it. I'm going through the motions. But it's a bummer right now. And so, as I begin to talk to other people, I, I begin to think, maybe this is spiritual warfare. Because we're all experiencing this, and we're in different life places, and different amounts of this and that, but, but, but a bunch of us were experiencing this together. So that made me, for the first time, begin to think, this is maybe spiritual warfare. And there's an important lesson for us to draw out right now. Is that when we're in the midst of spiritual warfare, we often don't spot it. It's sometimes obvious to the outsider. They're like, dude, the enemy's jacking you right now. And you're like, what do you mean? We, we often, and it's part of spiritual warfare, we, we just can't see it. It's just not obvious to us. We're just like in this fog. And what I needed was Christian community to figure out what was going on. And if I didn't have viable, meaningful, active Christian community, I probably just would have persisted in that state for a long time. I, I needed Christian community to discover... A, Maybe this is spiritual warfare. Now, hold that thought. At this juncture, we should say this. There's two equal and opposite errors when it comes to spiritual warfare and the devil and demons that Christians often make, okay? There's a Christian that thinks the devil is responsible for everything. 
you guys know this person. Some of you are them. You, you think the devil is responsible for everything that goes on that, that's difficult in life, right? Everything is spiritual warfare. You go into Vaughn's and you're looking for your favorite haagen and it's not there and you're like, the devil! <laughs> you're walking on the beach down at C Street and you, you stub your toe and you start rebuking demons. You go out in the morning to start your car and it doesn't start and it's spiritual warfare against you. And you know what? That's just creepy. That's just creepy. Don't, don't be creepy. Not, not everything is spiritual warfare. You don't have to sort of hyper-spiritualize everything. Don't, don't give the devil so much credit. Okay, it wasn't the devil that made Hagen dazs be absent from bonds. It was distribution problems. Okay, it wasn't a demon that caused you to stub your toe. You were just lazy and didn't pick up your foot high enough or see the rock in front of you. And it wasn't spiritual warfare that your car didn't start. You're just not good at maintaining your car. Go to Jiffy Lube in Jesus' name. So there's an error of seeing the devil in everything and everything is spiritual warfare. And that's just not true. Sometimes life is just hard. Okay? Sometimes life is just hard. But then there's an equal and opposite and, and perhaps even more dangerous error uh, of not seeing the devil in anything. Nothing is spiritual warfare. You know, Satan's not doing anything. Demons aren't doing anything. It's just the way things are and I just kind of got to power through it. I, I think Satan would probably rather have you live on this end of the spectrum where you don't think he's doing anything. And if I fall on one end, it's, it's, it's over here, oddly enough. You'd think with, with my job and as long as I've been doing it, be a little more over here, but, but when this tremendous spiritual warfare was happening against me that was bringing apathy, fear, anxiety, and depression with regard to my life calling, I just didn't think it was the devil. I just thought, man, I'm, I need another month in Hawaii. In Jesus' name, <laughs> I need more vacation. It was only in Christian community that I discovered, wait, this is spiritual warfare. This, this really is. And, and it almost always happens in my life that way. So then I, I, I began to try to get out from underneath it. I, I began engaging in spiritual warfare as I know how to do it and praying and doing battle and doing what James said, standing firm against the enemy, doing what Peter said, resisting the enemy, doing what Paul said, being strong in the strength of his might, Ephesians chapter 6, and I just couldn't get out from underneath it. I just could not. It just got worse. So again, I needed Christian community. So I got together who is my most immediate and involved community, and uh, we got together on a Tuesday morning in a room, and I said, let's talk about spiritual warfare. What's going on in your life? Here's what's going on in my life. And when I told them what was going on in my life, again, several of them said the same thing. I'm, I'm experiencing the same thing. And these are people that I'm, I'm doing life with, living life on mission with. They're saying, I'm, I'm experiencing some of these same things. So we said, okay, this is the enemy. So let's do spiritual warfare. So I'll tell you what we did that Tuesday morning just a couple weeks ago. Here's what spiritual warfare looked like for us, Okay. The first step was to identify something as being from the devil, that this indeed was spiritual warfare. And that's not always an easy thing to do, admittedly. That's not always an easy thing to do. That's best discerned in Christian community. So identifying this is the work of the enemy. So we identified it. And then rejecting it, okay? We all said, no, we're not going to do this. God has not called us to be apathetic. He's not called me to be fearful and anxious and depressed about what God has called me to do. No, I'm not going to do this. So identifying it, rejecting it, and then exalting Christ over it. Okay, so now we, we begin to pray. And they laid their hands on me and we begin to pray and just exalting Christ. Jesus, Colossians chapter 2 says that you have disarmed rulers and authorities. Right? The Bible says that you are greater than the enemy. That your cross was the victory over sin, death, and the devil. That you are high and exalted. You are the one who spoke all things into existence. All things were created by, for, by you and they exist for you. You are above every name, power, and principality. And you've defeated them all on the cross. You rule over them now and you are ultimately going to throw them into the lake of fire. So we begin just exalting the person and the work of Christ. So start out with identifying the attack, rejecting the attack, exalting Christ and declaring his work over the attack and then claiming my identity in Christ. So then they just begin to pray things like, Jesus, Brit belongs to you. The enemy has no right to do this. You've not created him to be apathetic and anxious and fearful and despondent and depressed. You've created him to have missional zeal and purpose in life, to be engaged with you, to have joy in the gospel. 
So, so we begin to talk about identity. He belongs to you. He's your son. He's bought with your blood. You've given him the victory. Nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our identity. Okay? This is, this is all ways that we stand firm and resist the devil and be strong in the might of the Lord, as Peter, Paul, and James said. Okay? So identify it, reject it, exalt Christ over it, claim his work over it, Speak of your identity in him. And then finally then, finally then, and, and often, often that'll be the end of it. Often it, it's good, got the victory. But that day it wasn't. So finally then what we began to do was verbally rebuke the devil. Why do we verbally rebuke the devil? In other words, what do I mean by verbally rebuking? I mean some guys were laying their hands on me and they were saying things like this. Satan, we command you in the name of Jesus to leave bread alone. You cannot bring this attack against him anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. You are defeated. We cast you out. We tell you to go away. And you cannot bring this work against him anymore in the name of Jesus. Why would we do something weird like that? Well, because that's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus encountered demons, he verbally commanded them to leave people alone. And then Jesus in Mark chapter 3 and in Mark chapter 6 and in Luke chapter something gave authority to the disciples and he sent them out on mission. He said, I've given you authority to cast out demons. So how are we to assume the disciples would have done it? They would have done it the way Jesus did it. Nobody, as far as we could tell from uh, church, secular, Jewish, and biblical history ever dealt with demons like Jesus dealt with demons. There's a brand new authority with the coming of Christ in his kingdom. And so they would have said, this is, this, this, this works. We're going to do what Jesus did. So they would have verbally commanded demons. How do we know that? Because the Apostle Paul, also in the book of Acts, verbally commanded demons. There was a young girl with the spirit of divination. He turned around and said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. So the biblical model that we have is because of who Christ is and what he's done in his name, in his authority, verbally rebuking and commanding demons to leave, to be gone. So we did that. Okay, it's called spiritual warfare, resisting the devil, standing firm. And, and the promise of James is resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We resisted the devil in Christian community and, friend, and since that Tuesday morning, that thing in my life of apathy, anxiety, fear, despondency, depression has been absolutely broken and is gone. Absolutely broken. And I, I rejoice with you guys in that because that was a really scary place to be. Now, here, here's, here's why I wanted to have this conversation with you guys today. Because imagine, okay, imagine if, if by the grace of God I hadn't discerned that it was spiritual warfare in Christian community. Imagine if, 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 if we hadn't done battle together in Christian community and I just tried to keep plugging away. It could have, ostensibly, possibly it could have been years, years of doing ministry and mission apathetically with increasing fear and anxiety, despondency, and depression. I mean, it, if, if we hadn't been savvy to and willing to engage in spiritual warfare, it could have meant years of a different and sad life. That's why this conversation is so incredibly important today. So Pastor Al's going to come up now. He's already been getting your text messages. And Pastor Billy's going to come into the crowd with the mic. And we are going to open it up for questions at this point. So does anybody from the crowd have a question? Over here. Yeah, you raise your hand. It's like school. You raise your hand, and then he'll come. Oh, okay, what, what we did in spiritual warfare? Okay, good, here we go. Very slowly for you note takers, and thank you for taking notes. Um, <clears throat> spiritual warfare generally involves identifying the work of the enemy. Okay, this is what the enemy's trying to do. Disagreeing with the work of the enemy, saying no. Exalting Christ over the work of the enemy. Declaring the work of Christ that defeated the enemy. Clinging to our identity in Christ. And then, if needed, verbally commanding the enemy. Did you get that? You got that? Verbally commanding. 
the enemy. You are super welcome. Thanks for asking that. Okay, we have a question? Who had a question? There we go. Kind of a follow-up to that is when you do the verbally commanding, is it important to do it outspoken or is it more in prayer? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. I think that it's important to do it verbally. Here's why. Um, And Wayne Grudem talks about this in Systematic Theology, which his chapter on the devil and spiritual warfare, a couple of chapters, is really helpful. It's one of the books that we always have at the book table, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. He says this. He says, asking why we should out loud verbally rebuke the enemy is kind of like asking, um, instead of just praying, right, which would be our default, which is usually my default, um, it's kind of like asking, well, why should we verbally preach the gospel? Why not just pray people will get it? Or why should we verbally encourage one another as Christians? Why not just pray that you would be encouraged? Why should we verbalize it? Well, because that's, that's one of the ways that God has made us is with an ability to speak. It's part of what it is, is being made in the image of God. God is a God who speaks and who lives, and, and he's given us that as a tool. Now, sometimes we could just pray that someone gets the gospel. We could pray they're encouraged, and we can just pray for Jesus to take care of demons, and oftentimes that's enough, and, and that's, that's my go-to usually. And that's kind of what we were doing in the front of half of that spiritual warfare I was talking about. So that's how we were just asking Jesus to deal with it. And sometimes he'll do it. But other times I think that our father just expects us to use the tools he's given to us. For example, if my son Isaiah, who's 10 years old, uh, came to me and said, Daddy, can you tie my shoe for me? I, I might do that depending on how I'm feeling and how he's feeling. But generally speaking, I'd be like, dude, I taught you to tie your shoe. Tie your shoe, Right? So when we say, Lord, deal with what the devil is doing, he, he might do that, and oftentimes he does, but sometimes he says, I have given you authority in my name because of who I am and what I've done to take verbal command over demons. So do it. And here's why that's cool. Here's, here's why that's really cool. Again, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. When we do that, we are in a really tangible, experiential way participating in the mission of Christ destroying the works of the devil. And God is into us having these tangible experiences. That's why he gave us baptism. That's why he gave us communion. Why not just remember the cross? Why eat a cracker and drink juice? Why? Because God wants us to have these tangible experiences that represent the truth of what he's done. And verbally commanding demons and seeing their work broken against a person is is an experience of the power and the work of Christ. And we get to participate in that eternal work. That was a great question. Thank you. Uh, do you want to go to a text question? Yep. Um, my three-year-old came running up to me one evening last week and said, Mommy, there's a monster on the couch over there. Do you see it? If she's seen demons uh, or spirits, how do I handle that? Yeah. Well, a preparatory statement, first of all. Uh, Satan is called in the Bible our adversary. The Hebrew word for Satan is adversary. In the New Testament, he's called our enemy. And he's ruthless. He's really ruthless and cruel. There's there's not a merciful thing about him. So, he often goes after our kids. He just does. He knows that's where it hurts us the most, right? There's nothing that hurts more than when your kids are messed with. And and he knows that in some way they're, they're vulnerable. So he often goes after our kids. In the last 10 years of my life, that's been the primary spiritual attack has been against my kids. And it, it's, it's been difficult. So that's a reality that mm-hmm. we have to deal with. This is why husbands and wives need to learn to do spiritual warfare in their homes. I pray with my arms lifted high in my kids' bedrooms when they're asleep all the time. I pray when they're going to bed laying my hands on them, warfare-type prayers. I, I stand in my house and rebuke the enemy and pray God's covering over it. I, in the middle of the night, walk to the end of my street sometimes and stand there with my arms lifted up, praying, doing warfare at the end of my street for the protection of my kids and my neighbor's kids. So moms and dads have to learn to do this because we don't want our kids to get messed with. So if your kid is, is seeing demons, and I, I don't doubt the possibility of that, then you need to first engage in spiritual warfare as we just spoke of. Um, if it's difficult for you to do that alone, and I, 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 I never do it alone unless I have to, unless it's the middle of the night and I'm just in my kid's room, then I'll always get back up 
and we're happy as pastors and elders to come to your home. We're very pleased to do that. Or with your community group, your life group, friends, but get some backup, do spiritual warfare, pray over your kids, and do it frequently. I've had to do that nonstop for the last decade. Question in the crowd? Over here, Billy, in the middle, over here. Would you also clump uh, repeated nightmares into that? And, you know, how does the enemy work in terms of nightmares and thoughts and things like that? Yeah. Okay, nightmares. That's a good one. Anybody ever feel like you had a demonic nightmare? Anybody ever feel like that? Yeah, okay, so most of us have. And, and, and thoughts, too. You, you brought up thoughts. Sometimes you have a thought that is so wicked, right? Like, so heinously evil. You're like, that's, that's, that's satanic. And, and then you have dreams like that, too. So, so that would beg the question, and this is an uncomfortable one. Can Satan implant thoughts in our heart and mind? And gosh, I, I would like to think that no. I would like to think that he's got no, no access, but it seems clear from Scripture that he does. Um, it says concerning Judas, who's not the best example because he's Judas, but in John 13, <laughs> but he did spend a lot of time with Jesus. In, in John 13, it says that the devil prompted Judas. That's a New Living Translation. In the New American Standard, in the ESV, it says... Uh, Something along the lines of, of the devil filled his heart. Mm-hmm. And then we'll look at a couple Christians in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then there was a time where, where David was, um, where, where Satan implanted in his mind, right? Mm-hmm. In First uh, Chronicles 21, the idea of numbering Israel, so on and so forth. So it seems from Scripture pretty clear that Satan can pl- implant thoughts in our heart and our mind. So that would include dreams, thoughts, feelings, impressions, um, all sorts of satanic things. So that's where we got to learn to resist the devil and he'll flee from you, as James said, right? So absolutely, it seems from Scripture that the enemy could do that. Okay, did that answer that question? Yep. Okay, right here. What uh, you and the uh, staff did is something I call cleansing, cleaning house. I'm aware of a couple of ministries that, uh, that have ministries to, to be able to do that where believers can come in and, and basically break any inroads of the enemy and, and vents of the forefathers, uh, iniquities of the forefathers. Is there any ministry within reality where you guys support that or direction that you would send uh, congregation to yeah, yeah. Say, say support that? Yeah, so dealing with demons in the life of the Christian, uh, deliverance-type ministry, stuff like that. Yeah, we deal with that all week long, all the time, um, as leaders, elders, in Christian community. Um, so we're happy to do that when people call or come by the church or have needs or we come to their homes. So we support that and we do that. Back there, Billy. And while Billy's going, you have a text one? When bad things happen cancer, accidents, disasters, is that God allowing Satan to work? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. And I, we already answered it in a certain degree. Sometimes people just get cancer. It's just life, right? Sometimes people just get sick. Um, sometimes bad things just happen. Cars crash. Other times, Satan can do that. It, it, it's, it's really clear in Scripture that Satan can cause sickness and all sorts of things. So is God allowing it? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Is God allowing it? Well, yeah. Yeah. Because we have to say that God is sovereign over Satan. We have to say that. We have to say that he defeated Satan completely on the cross and that he will display and manifest that defeat of Satan ultimately and completely in the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. 
where Satan and demons are thrown in the lake of fire, and there they are tormented forever and ever, day and night, it says in the New American Standard, Revelation chapter 20. So Satan is defeated. He will be ultimately defeated and tormented. In the interim period, he's allowed some leeway in the world. And there's lots of philosophical and theological reasons why that might be, and we could get into those, but that would be beyond the scope of our conversation today. But here might be something a little more down to earth. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said to Peter, 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 Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. So there's a few points about that. Satan had to ask Jesus' permission to mess with Peter. Jesus gave Satan permission. Jesus said, I'll pray for you, but he's going to mess with you. And then he gave him hope and said, when you've returned, in other words, this is not going to be your ultimate demise. This is not going to be to your destruction. When you return, you'll strengthen the brethren. You're big mouth, impetuous Peter right now, but after you've gone through some trials, some temptation, and you've gotten the victory, and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to use you to preach a sermon where 3,000 people will get saved the first day of the church. And you're going to be the number one leader in my church. So the point is, God allowed it to work his purposes. And is that not the ultimate show of authority and power when you can use what your opponent is trying to do and his best game to actually work for your purposes, to turn it around so that it's joke on him and your purposes are achieved? God does that with Satan every single day. No doubt Satan thought the cross was going to be a great victory for him. There's Jesus nailed to the cross. Whoops, right? What Satan meant for evil, God intended for good. So yeah. Okay, back there. Um, I have a friend whose daughter is like way into um, Harry Potter and, and, and all of those books. Um, what are your thoughts on that as it relates to, to the demonic and then also um, as the friend, not the parent, so therefore not an authority, how can I best uh, pray for them in that situation? Yeah. Harry Potter, that's a tough one on because if I asked you guys to raise your hands, how many of you are reading those books or have seen that movies, that movie would be the majority of you guys. Um, I think that the New Testament tells us that we should not have anything to do with even the appearance of evil. So because Satan is alive and well and active, I think that we as lovers of Christ and lovers of truth should... Um, should do everything that we can to not help glorify things that are contrary to Christ. And I know all the implications of Harry Potter, and you could go and read all your websites and stuff, but for my family, for me, I, I want my heart and mind dwelling more on the truth of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ and Scripture and who God is and what he says and what he's doing in the world and my life than I do on evil imagery. So I, I already struggle with evil as it is. I'm, there's evil thoughts in my mind. There's evil intents in my heart. There's horrific pictures in my head. So I, I don't want to add to that, and I, I don't want to do that with my kids. So what can you do as a friend to the parent? I mean, gee whiz. They're, uh, <laughs> that's hard between friends. To, t to tell your friend you know, how to raise their kids, is, that's a tough one. Um, but you can just lovingly share, hey, is there something else that we could fill their heart and their mind with? Text question? Um, and let me just follow up and say, I don't want anyone here to feel condemned if they're watching Harry Potter. That, Harry Potter's not the issue. Um, I've got friends who are pastors that are super into it and watch it all the time. Uh, people in my family. I thought it was a good movie. Yeah, I know you did. Okay, so in, in my mind, you know, that's not really the issue. So I don't, I don't want to get hung up on that. And don't go spread rumors in the community, Brits against Harry Potter, and reality hates Harry Potter. And <laughs> that's not really the issue. Or Al worships the devil. Yeah.
It's judgmental. (laughs) Do you believe that a person who was once saved, or I guess it would classify someone who's confessed to know Christ, um, who is backslidden, can become demon-possessed? There's another question that kind of ties into this that asks, can Christians be physically attacked? By the devil. So I guess there's kind of two elements. Yeah. Uh, an abiding Christian, can they be attacked by the devil? Yeah. On the flip side, someone who's professed to know Christ, who's fallen away, can they be um, then yeah. possessed, yeah. demonized? Yeah, yeah let, let's try to boil it down and, and make it simple and, and simply ask it like this. So, so what, what can demons do to Christians? Okay, what can demons do to Christians? And uh, there's actually a great book about that by Merrill Unger, What Demons Can Do to Saints. We'll have this available for you next week. This would be top recommendation on that sort of stuff. And then if you want to press it a little further, we would say, can a Christian be demon-possessed? That's, that's really what we're wanting to know. Can a Christian, backslidden Christian, whatever, be demon-possessed? Here's the answer. Absolutely not. Yes, for sure. Here's what I mean. First of all, it, it's the wrong question. The question is not, can a Christian be possessed? Because that's not the, that's not the language that the Bible uses. Okay, in, in, in the Greek New Testament, nowhere is the word possessed used in relation to a demon and what it's doing to people. Um, when we started doing English translations, we began to import the word possessed. Um, King James did it most popularly. So they would say he was possessed by a devil or possessed by demons. The word is not there in the original Greek. In the original Greek, it's a singular word, daimonizomai. Okay, it's just one word. It would be translated demonized. But, but English translations added in demon-possessed. Now, that may have been an acceptable thing to do in King James' time, but language and usage of words and definition of words changes over time and through culture. So I don't know how they use the term possessed, but that's not an acceptable way to talk about demonic influence today among Christians, okay? Because when we say possession, we mean absolute ownership and authority. Like if I, like, like my car, I possess my car. My name is on the title. That car is in my name. And when I'm driving that car, it's going where I want it to go and only where I want it to go and it can't decide and nobody else can decide, Right? So that's how we think of possession. So can a Christian be possessed by the devil? Absolutely not. Not in that sense, absolutely not. Because Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, that we are now sons of God, book of Galatians, book of Romans, that we are owned by God. So, so, so the issue of possession is settled once and for all when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. We belong to him. And, and Jesus said, and John in the middle chapters, uh, eight or ten, I can't remember, I think ten, that I've got them in my hand and the Father's got him like this and nobody could snatch him out, right? So no, we can't be owned and ultimately ruled by demons. But again, or the devil. But that's not the right question because that's not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about demonization, which happens on a continuum or a scale from what we might call slight, um, implanting thoughts or creating anxiety or bitterness or fear to what we might call extreme where there's like demonic manifestations like we see in Mark chapter 5 where the guy was naked and cutting himself and crying out and living among the graves. There's nothing to suggest in scripture that Christians cannot be influenced by demons, demonized on a continuum. Here's why persistent sin then becomes important because in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and 27 it says this, Don't continue in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you do, you give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. You give the devil a foothold. What is a foothold? That's part of our common um, Christian vernacular. What is a foothold? Well, it's a translation of a Greek word, tapas, from from where we get our word topography, okay? It's spatial language of inhabitation. This is a tapas. It's a room. It's a space. It's a place. When Luke wrote in Luke chapter 2 concerning Mary and Joseph, there was no room for them in the inn. There was no tapas for them in the inn. There was no space. There was no place. Spatial language of inhabitation. 
So that Greek word tapos, the New Living Translation says foothold. The NIV translates it foothold. The New American Standard translates it um, opportunity. The English Standard Version, opportunity. New King James says don't give a place to the devil. The idea is this. When we let the sun go down on our anger, persist in anger, and Paul is just using anger there as, as an example. Really, the idea is when we persist in and don't repent of our sin, we give Satan a place, space, opportunity, foothold in our lives. A a powerful degree of influence in our lives, which will affect the way that we think, the way that we feel, how we interact in relationships, all, all those sort of things. So when there's a foothold, when we've given the devil a place, a space, we need to deal with it, right? We need to deal with that. Now, I'll talk about dealing with it in a second, but what does it mean that we've given, you know, that spatial language of inhabitation? What does that mean for the Christians? Does that mean that the, that the demon is in us? Are, are they around us? Are, are they on us? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I, I, I don't know the metaphysics of it. The, the Bible's not clear about that. The idea of the New Testament is daimonizomite, demonization. You, Christian, because you persisted in your sin, gave Satan an opportunity, a foothold, a place, a space in your life, and now it's radically affecting your thoughts and your behavior. And so you need to deal with it. And the way that we deal with that is, first of all, by realizing that the responsibility for your sin is yours. Okay? The New Testament is very clear that the responsibility for sin falls on the individual Christian. You don't get to say the devil made me do it. No. You chose to sin against God and you persisted in that and it gave the devil a big open door in your life. So you need to bear that responsibility, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and then do spiritual warfare if there's a stronghold. And usually that's best done in community. So you go to someone and you say, look, help me battle this thing. There's a stronghold in my life. Now, what might strongholds look like commonly for us? Bitterness is a big one. Listen, the the key issue of the cross is forgiveness. So Satan is always going to attack us in the area of forgiveness. That's why Paul draws out anger there because anger always denotes a refusal to forgive. That's why the author of Hebrews said, um, be careful that a root of bitterness doesn't spring up by which many are defiled. The key issue is, is forgiveness. So Satan will always try to, try to keep us from things like forgiveness, which will lead to anger and bitterness, right? And so th- those things need to be repented of, identified, spiritual warfare done, and then we need to begin to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. I forgive because I've been forgiven right? And we rejoice in that truth and we preach the gospel to ourselves until it begins to have an effect on our relationships and the way that we deal with others. So can Christians be demon-possessed? No. Wrong question. Can Christians be demonized? Yes. I've cast out dozens of demons in the last decade and 99% of them were out of Christians. And it's been everything from just demonic influence where I wouldn't, really wouldn't call it casting out. I would just say, let's do warfare and get free from this to full-blown manifestations that look just like Mark chapter 5. Screaming, writhing, cutting, supernatural strength, altered voices, all of that stuff. 99% of the time, it's been Christians that have had those things. That's controversial. That's what I think on the topic. Okay, are we live back here? That one person wanted to clap for that answer. Go ahead, give it to me. Come on. You, you may have just answered this uh, question, but when you have a spiritual attack like you were referring in your own life, and you had the discouragement and apathy, and then you had the victory uh, through spiritual warfare, um, what changed? Uh, was it more you or Satan? And what is it that's changed that is going to prevent that from happening or making it less likely to continue? Yeah, that's, that's, a, wise, that's a wise question. Well, <clears throat> um, I, I, 
I, I think that in that whole part that I said of identifying it as being the work of enemy and rejecting it, so there was a big change for me. We could also call that repentance. I rejected it. I said, I'm, I'm not going to be apathetic. I'm not going to be anxious about what God is doing. Right? Be anxious for nothing, Christ said. I'm not going to be ruled by fear. Uh, first John, God has, God has not given me a spirit of fear. Right? So th- there's that degree that I have to change. I have to change my mind about it. You've got to identify it and say, I'm not going to partner with that anymore. Right? That's, that's a big one for forgiveness is we harbor these unforgivenesses and really we're, we're partnering with Satan. Say, so I'm not going to partner with that anymore. I'm going to repent of unforgiveness. I'm going to repent of apathy. I'm going to repent of that anxiety. So I change, but then the demonic influence over my life is broken through that spiritual warfare that we did. So, so it's both. There's a change that came to my heart and mind about it, and then the work of the enemy was broken off, and then how do we not fall back into that same thing? I think that's where we become savvy and we start to know, okay, so I've got these areas historically where the enemy has attacked me, so I need to have a strong guard there. My wife taught me that years ago, that if you discover a place where the enemy often attacks you, then arm yourself with the word of God in that area and become strong in that area of it's a weakness so you don't fall into that again. It's a question about um, mental illness, and, and basically it comes down to how do you tell the difference between demonization or spiritual attack mm. and mental disorder? Schizophrenia, bipolar, right. depression, right. etc. Right. Um, okay. That's, that's one of the most difficult things in, in our culture right now. So we can look at things like uh, schizophrenia, multiple personalities, um, even depression. And all of these things can be clinically diagnosed. So we're able to say there's this physiological thing going on in your body that causes you to have this. But all of those things also look just like some of the symptoms of demonization or severe demonic influence in somebody's life. Why do they look so similar? Why do they look so similar? Because our bodies as God created them can only react to certain stimuli in certain ways. In other words, if Satan wants to make you sick, you know, it's going to look like a cold maybe, or it's going to look like the flu, right? Because that's what your body does. Like, there's not like demonic sickness where you like grow a purple arm out of your shoulder or you grow a horn out of the back of your head. That's not the physicality of how God created us. Your body can only respond in certain ways. So you might just have a cold, because you, you, you got a virus, someone sneezed in your face at church when you were worshiping, and now you're sick. Or it could be truly demonic in nature, but they look the same. So you might have clinically diagnosed depression because there's a chemical imbalance, there's a physiological thing that is wrong, and so you're depressed. Or it might be demonic influence, and they look the same. Or, just a quick caveat there, you might just be feeling depressed that day. You might just be sort of melancholy and you're bummed out. It's just part of life, okay? But we're talking about the extremes here. Same with then um, things like schizophrenia and hallucinations and uh, multiple personalities. Those can be clinically diagnosed and dealt with sometimes, but they can also be demonic. And our bodies only react in certain ways. And so it can be very, very difficult to tell. And that's been one of my primary frustrations as a pastor, Okay, and as someone who practices deliverance sort of ministry, that's been one of my primary frustrations because neither practitioner then theoretically can perfectly deal with the problem. So a doctor could diagnose and prescribe, but if there's a spiritual component, it, it hasn't fixed it. Or, or we could like do spiritual warfare and break what the enemy's doing, or if it's severe, cast out demons, but if there's a physiological problem, it hasn't necessarily dealt with it. Of course, we could pray for healing, but God doesn't always heal. And so life is this tremendously difficult thing of trying to discern what's spiritual, what's physical, what's just a hard day, and how do I deal with that? And, and there's no easy answer other than to say, that's just difficult. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit has given many within the church a gift of discerning of spirits. We're able to know supernaturally in an instant if something is from the flesh, the devil, or the Lord. Um, luckily, thankfully, the Lord has given us Christian community whereby we can discuss these things and discover together, wow, no, you really have this physical problem, or you just need to repent. You're just being an Eeyore right now, or there's some, which is often the case, Al, or... <laughs> He watches Harry Potter and then gets depressed, and I'm trying to tell him. No, just and kidding. Actually, 
or there's some demonic thing there and, and it's difficult and, and you've got to discern and you've got to do everything you can and that's why life is hard sometimes. How would you feel about medication? Because some people have the view that medication, if you prescribe medication for that, is, is not, not a faith or unspiritual. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Let me illustrate that with this. Last night, um, my friend Jason, who's in the second row, and I, we took our son's uh, BMX racing and uh, a little track in Camarillo here, Freedom Park. And uh, if, if one of our sons had fallen down and broken their arm, which is totally possible, the first thing that, that I would have done is prayed for God to heal it. That would have just been my go-to. It's quicker than 911, right? I just laid my hands and said, Lord, heal this bone. And I, I believe God could do that. I have a theology that says God could do that. If God did that, get back on the bike, kid. <laughs> if God didn't do that, I would take him to the emergency room and I would have a physician set the bone. And we would see medical care all the way through to the end. And I would also be praying, Lord, I just pray that that bone heals right. I pray that they suffer as little as possible. I pray that you help the healing process. Um, but if God didn't heal it supernaturally, I would get the bone set. And so it is with legitimate chemical imbalances and prescription of some sort of drug for that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that our first defense should be let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Let's look at all these spiritual areas that we can deal with. And then if it's still there, I think we should seek medical attention for that. I don't think that people should feel condemned with that. I think of part of God's common grace on humanity is that he's given us wisdom to deal with some physical problems. Mm -hmm. And throughout history, in every instance, God has chosen to work through people, not just independent of people. So God uses physicians. And when we need that, we should get that. I find this question a little difficult to ask, um, but I think it's exceptionally relevant. Um, would you be willing to state whether or not you believe that the religion of Islam is basically a work of the devil? Oh, yeah, that's no problem. Thank you for asking that. I, I believe that Islam is satanic, thoroughly satanic. I believe that every religion other than Christianity is satanic. Every single one of them, and, and every perversion of Christianity, and every cult, and new, aged, new ageism, and humanism is satanic, because Satan's primary goal, primary goal is to deny the person in the work of Jesus Christ. So there's no question in my mind that those things are satanic, and, and it's not just me saying that, that's what scripture has to say. Scripture has to say that the idols of the people are demons. Paul made that very clear, that what's behind idolatry, and false religion, and false spirituality is demonic stuff. So no question about that. How do we deal with that? You know, Paul planted churches in the most pagan, saturated areas like Ephesus and Philippi and Sardis and Pergamum and all these places that were radically saturated with, with false religions and false gods and tons of years of, of uh, Roman pantheology and Greek mythology and all that stuff. And what he didn't do was go into a place and like you know, bind the demon of um, Greek mythology or this or that or the other. What, what he did in the face of things like Islam and New Ageism, so on and so forth, is he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ because how do we deal with a satanic lie? The truth of mm -hmm. Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So that was a great question. Thank yeah. you for having the boldness to ask that. This is a, this is a good question, and it's, uh, I'm sure it's a little bit painful for this person to ask, so... They ask, what do you do if your spouse is in deep sexual sin slash pornography and doesn't see it as demonic or spiritual attack? Yeah. Well, so pornography. Here, here's what I think about pornography. I think that pornography is the single most destructive force in our culture right now. What it does to a man, what it does to women, what it does to marriages, what it does to parenting, what it does to family, what it does to perception of the other sex, uh, what it does to communities, what it's doing to our nation. I think it's the single most destructive force in culture. So Satan, as a wise adversary, as a wise opponent, as a hater of humanity, I would assume, I think, that Satan, because he sees how destructive pornography is, is has said, Anywhere pornography is, there I will be also. 
So I think that pornography and all of its forms is a huge open tapas, space, opportunity, potential foothold for the devil. There's just no question about that. I think, like, I think in a very unique way, Satan has said, where pornography goes, I'm going to go too. So, um, I, that's your husband. I, we need to try to talk sense to him, show that to him. Um, we would love to meet with him as pastors. Uh, you can email me, Brit at Reality Ventura. I would love to talk to him. Anyone on staff, we'd love to talk to him, but we need to try to show him uh, the destructive nature of that and how it, like Ephesians 4 says, opens up our lives to the enemy. And I, I grieve for you because I'm sure you're experiencing uh, some of the outfall of how he's opened up his life. So please let, let the pastoral staff know, let elders come and to your home and pray with you, pray for you, and try to talk to your husband. But yeah, that's definitely a, a demonic issue. Back there, Billy. Run, Billy, run. <laughs> okay, well, my question more is like in, around my friends and my community, a lot of them still smoke marijuana and drink and everything just seems like it's normal and is that part of like being a spiritual warfare when your community everybody around you is doing that and they just is that like an idol that you can pray against and they want to not have that but their will sometimes just keeps them in that sin yeah well, <clears throat> probably the backdrop to that question is to remember, as it sounds like you are, Jesus was a friend to sinners. So Jesus didn't shy away from uh, drunkards and prostitutes, and in our culture it would have been pot smokers and, and drug abusers. He didn't shy away from them. He, he was present with them, did life with them, because that's who he came to save. Um, so is that a spiritual issue? Yeah, sure. Of, yeah, of course that's a spiritual issue in the sense that Ephesians chapter 5 tells us not to get drunk with wine because that's a waste, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's this whole juxtaposition. Some would say that the way the New Testament uses the word pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmaceutical, uh, in the book of Revelation would be a, references to, a reference to drug use, and then it has some connection with sorcery. And uh, I, I'm not totally sure of all of that, but I do know that Peter says, uh, be alert and be sober because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a pro- uh, roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. So anything that would keep us from being alert spiritually, right, and engage with Christ is a spiritual issue. And certainly we want to engage that in the context of love and community and friendship through prayer, through discipleship, through coaching, through trying to convince that, hey, maybe there's a, a better way to do life. So, yep, that's an issue and a spiritual issue. Yeah. Okay, we maybe have time for one more. Okay. If it's a short one. Short one. How can I tell if I'm being attacked by the devil because I've given a foothold in my life or if it's just that because I'm trying to discover God's purpose in my life? So. Oh, so is it because, uh, is it opposition drawn from mission or is it because of persistent sin? Mm-hmm. Well, what I, what I do in my life is I, I kind of do an inventory. So if I feel like there's, there's spiritual warfare happening, I'll just be like, wow, where's, where are the areas of persistent sin in my life? And they're always there. there there's never a time where I'm like, oh, I, there's no way that I'm sinning continually. ha. <laughs> <laughs> I just, maybe, maybe some of you have. I, I just haven't gotten there yet. There, there's always some sort of sin issue. So then I'll just try to, you know, think and pray. Is there a connection? And, and, and where are the areas where I need to repent? Because again, the New Testament clearly places a responsibility for sin on the individual Christian. Okay? doesn't blame the devil. It blames you. It blames me. So I'll repent of those areas. And I'll, I'll seek to grow in holiness and impurity in those areas. And, and if in doing that, I sense, wow, this is a stronghold. What does a stronghold look like? I just can't get the victory. I just can't get out of this. There's no way that I could get through this. That's how I felt with that apathy and that fear and that anxiety and that despondency. Then I call in the Christian community for backup. Um, so usually by an inventory in my mind, I'll know if something is, is sim-related. Um, mission from opposition oftentimes just kind of hits you from the side. You're there, you're, you're just, you know, you're, you're doing whatever, you're living life on mission, and, and wham, these attacks come. 
I don't know that we always have to identify the why mm. other than, you know, we do need to repent. So err on the side of repentance. Like, just repent a lot. Just, Lord, this, oh, I did, right? And, and, and try to sin less and obey more because that will create a smaller opportunity for the enemy in our lives. And if it's opposition, then I would say this. And here's how I'll close. And Chris, you can come up, get ready, lead us in a song. I would say that Ephesians chapter 6 calls us to be strong in the might of the Lord. We're never called to be strong in and of ourselves. So if you're on mission, you need God's strength. Don't forget, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Don't forget that God has not given you a spirit of fear. Don't let any of this create fear in you, but of power and love and a sound mind. Don't forget that Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that he was convinced that nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even demonic powers and principalities. Don't forget that our weapons for warfare are divinely powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For tearing down strongholds. Don't forget that Jesus rules and reigns and is on the throne and will accomplish his purposes for his glory in you and through you in the world. Our job is to cling to Jesus and what he's done for us and rejoice in his gospel daily. Amen? Amen. There's going to be prayer team up here and they'll be here after the service as well. But let's sing the song of rejoicing. Let's stand up.